We were all very blobby by the end of the Dronitsky. <laughs> That is a whole. That's a whole another um, ice pod subject. Is life on the? I guess so. The ice pod is the podcast about polar science and the people. We talk to scientists who went on board Polarstern, the German research icebreaker, for the biggest research expedition in the Arctic. Welcome to the Ice Pod. This is actually the sixth episode uh, in support of the Mosaic One Year Ice Drift in the Arctic. Uh, we are still producing this show from our homes in Bremen. My name is Kirstin Werner. And I'm Sara Pascoletto. And uh, today we are connected with uh, Boulder, Colorado, on the other side of the world, so to say. Our guest yep. is Tanil Uttal. How are you doing, Tanil? I'm doing just fine. Good morning. It's morning for me here. I just got up and am to talk to you this morning about Mosaic. Yes. So Tanil is um, a member of the Polar Prediction Steering Group. And she's also a leader of the data task team and also of the YOP side MIP effort. We can talk about this maybe later. And Tanil has been one of the lucky ones who joined leg two of Mosaic. So um, after we already heard lots um, about radio sound launches from Anja Sommerfeld during the last episode of the iSpot, uh, we would like to continue talking about what was going on in terms of atmospheric observations um, on board Polarstern and also on the surrounding ice flow um, today with Tanil. But uh, we would also like to hear and learn from her about her personal experiences and um, her career in science as a physicist and a meteorologist. And uh, last but not least, about Tanil being an artist. Um, but actually, Tanil, before we dig into your life and your roots and your career, um, let me ask you another question. Since uh, more than a week now, uh, the world is uh, kind of following with open mouths um, about what's going on in the US. So after George Floyd has been killed in the streets of Minneapolis by police officers um, in all the major cities, cities across the US, people are protesting against how people of color are treated um, by authorities. Um, I spent some months, actually seven months in 2012 and 2013 in Boulder. So I was wondering just briefly, um, how's the situation right now in Boulder? Do you know that? Are people out on Pearl Street Mall protesting? People in Boulder have been going out to, um, <clears throat> we have an area called City Park, which is a couple blocks away from Pearl Street. And I think that the protests have been as far as I know, I've been 100% peaceful and very constructive. And I also want to say I appreciate you bringing up this topic because this is the biggest thing I think on everybody's mind right now. And it was actually hard for me to think about just doing an interview <clears throat> about, um, about just about mosaic and the science. And it would seem so yeah. disconnected to me um, from what's going on with that. Yeah. I have been, actually, I've spent the weekend at my parents and they have CNN. So we would spend the time until 2 a.m. in the morning watching um, the news there. It was, I mean, it was more exciting than any, I don't know, movie or something, what was going on. 
especially what was that the night so when trump trump actually went to to the church for that bible we were following this live it was um yeah i mean i can't even say we were speechless we um one thing that i've heard that i have a question for you is that these kind of protests or raising of consciousness about how people of color get treated um for centuries now and all over the world is spreading to other countries and i've heard that there are also protests including in germany and i'm wondering what you know about what's going on in germany yeah so so what i know what is that in berlin um there were protests i think all the weekend including monday which was a holiday in uh, germany um there was also something going on in london There have been demonstrations in Bremen too. Yeah, the the latest one I think was also in in I think even Tuesday, and it was pre it was much more uh, participated as expected. It was like around more than two thousand people. Oh, okay. Um, actually, uh, demonstrating. It's incredibly important to keep this in the yeah. conversation, and then just to remember that it's uh it it's not separated from also science and and every other field. First of all, from the science community, as you said, I know the American Geophysical Union and the American Meteorological Society are releasing official statements now saying that they are in solidarity. And <clears throat> I'm on a Facebook page, which is for um, women in sciences. And a lot of the um, black women scientists are now really, you know, being able to be articulate and to describe issues that they're having. And I, I'm hoping that the really great thing is, is that maybe for the first time, you know, it's not just this temporary outrage and it subsides and things go back to usual. Yeah. Really right. hope that everybody yeah. is really, really listening and really trying to figure out how we can make this a real change this time. And yeah. You know, people look at the United States and they look at all the things we have going on with our administration and riots and school shootings. And they say that, you know, this is, you know, what a terrible country you've got and why aren't you running things? And, I, and actually when I was on Mosaic, sometimes we had very little political discussions, but a lot of times mm -hmm. people come up and say, well, what are you guys doing in the United States? But I, I would like to say that I feel like maybe the United States is now spearheading this movement of consciousness. Because I think yeah. countries are realizing that all countries have got the same problem. I know, um, yeah. I know Trudeau in Canada made a whole statement about how we really, he, they were asking, what do you think about the United States? And he said, I think I need to be thinking about what's going on in Canada because we have the exact same problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you, Tanil, for, <laughs> for talking uh, to, uh, to us about this. Thank you very much. Um, looking at your CV, Are you a Colorado kid? I actually, um, no. Um, I was born in Ohio and I lived there only temporarily. And then I was a like very young child in New York. But I, and I lived most of my um, growing up in Michigan, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is a university town. Okay. And, um, but my father was very fond of traveling. He was a university professor. So I, because of sabbaticals, I lived for one year in Australia, one year in Japan, one year or a couple of years in Hawaii. So as I was growing up, there was always a lot of travel in my life. I see. So all around the nation, the country, so to yes. say. Yeah. Well, to actually wow. answer your question, I came out to Colorado when I was in high school for a mm -hmm. summer science camp, basically. 
And I fell so in love with Colorado that I switched going to university here. So I have been in Colorado since I was 18 years old, and I married a born and bred Colorado cowboy. And uh, <laughs> now I consider myself to actually be a Coloradoan. So, so yeah, you you got your degrees in at the Colorado State University, which is in Fort Collins, a bit north of Boulder, right? Yeah, my undergraduate degree at Colorado College, which is a small private school in Colorado Springs, and then I did mm -hmm. my um, graduate work at Colorado State University, which is yeah. in the United States. It's one of the two or three big atmospheric science departments. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, then you moved, I mean, without any uh, break uh, directly into um, to NOAA. That was then in Boulder, yeah? Since uh, 1982, you have been working with NOAA. I actually started when I was still an undergraduate at Colorado College, and I think it was just my second year there. Okay. There was um, somebody who was an alumni at Colorado College, and he worked for NOAA, and he came down. And we had this unusual situation in Colorado College where we taught classes on something called the block plan. So you would do one semester's worth of work in one class in one month, and then you would move on to the next class. Okay. And he needed to have two people as radar operators for a weather modification project in California. And so he knew that we could take one month off without losing a whole semester. So... He came down and he hired me and one of my um, fellow students. And so we went out to the Sierras and worked in these um, cloud sensing radars. And um, so that's kind of when I fell into doing field work at a very early age. And then so I kept working for NOAA on student positions and internship positions while I was going to school. And um, so that's why I have such an early entry date with Colorado that doesn't really match up with my graduation dates. Right, right. And that was then seamless going into employment as a metrologist at NOAA, yeah? Or Yes. I yeah. had the only other jobs I've had in my life is being a waitress. And oh. then I worked I worked as a heavy equipment operator in a strip mine, a coal strip mine in western Colorado just briefly you know, for a little while. But other than that I have been working for NOAA my entire life. Okay, so from, from an early career science perspective today, that looks like paradise, you know, with these fixed-term yes. contracts. <laughs> I am so lucky when I look at people today and the difficulties in finding positions and having to do postdocs and even consecutive postdocs, I think it's really unfortunate the kind of opportunities there are for young scientists. Yeah, right. So so when was it that you became interested in the Arctic or, I don't know, got your your task um, having to do with, with the Arctic? So you, I mean, you have been working a lot um, with the International Arctic Systems for Observing The atmosphere, Iasoa, working working to set up the stations, which is, I think, a legacy of the International Polar Year. Was that right. when you started working in the Arctic, or was that even before? My oh, thing with the Arctic, before that, I was working basically in an engineering group, and we were building radars and LIDARs to detect um, non-precipitating cloud properties, which were being used for a number of different field experiments. But um, then this SHIBA, the Surface Heat and Energy Budget of the Arctic Experiment, came on, which was um, a year-long ship deployment, very similar to Mosaic, but that was 22, 23 years ago, mm -hmm. I think, 7, 88. And um, 
They were looking for remote sensing devices, and I put in a, a application with them for us to operate a cloud radar there. And the Department of Energy was also there. The ARM program was the beginning of the ARM program was there with some sensors. And so now when I go out to Mosaic and I see all the LIDARs and all the radars and the whole Department of Energy suite of instruments out there, I'm just like, it's really exciting for me because I was with the laboratory that helped design all those instruments and worked with the agencies in the U.S. to get those to be operational. So it's been really great. But it was that Sheba project, which is when I um, was a principal investigator on three different projects mm -hmm. that I went out to Sheba. And that's when I completely just fell in love with Arctic research and never came away. So, so you fell in love with Arctic research. Did you also fall in love with, Ar with the Arctic itself? I guess so. I would say that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, yeah. I like to think of, I think of the Arctic. I, people say, what do you like about it so much? And I always say it's life at the triple point. You know, with the triple point being that temperature where water can exist as a vapor, a solid, and a liquid. And so when you're in the Arctic, you're seeing water in every single form that there is. And it's just fascinating to me, standing on ice, in ice fogs, with crystals falling, and hearing the water moving underneath the ice. And um, yes, I just, I think it's magical. And you brought your first song, um, you brought... To us, um, this is uh, by Alice Merton, No Roots. So you write about the song, everyone who goes to the Arctic has to be able to leave their lives behind and have no roots. Well, and, and maybe one reason that that song speaks to me um, a little bit is because when I went to Sheba the first time, I left my husband with my two children that were quite young. They were only six and eight years old. And I went to Sheba three different times. And they weren't such long legs as they are in Mosaic. But I would say that altogether, I was gone 12, probably 14 weeks on three different deployments to Sheba. And my husband was so supportive and great. So it was really great that I left my roots, but they were still there when I came back. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the good thing about coming home. I said I like it because it talks about digging holes, which we all that's all we do in the ice is dig holes. Yeah. <laughs> and then I've got memories, and I hope I find them when I'm old. So maybe I buried my memories at Sheba, and I was digging them up at Mosaic. I don't know. You could. Yeah. So I would say we listen to that song. Okay. And then continue speaking. We are back now. To the ice pod yes <laughs> the podcast about polar science and the people i think we didn't say that this time we changed the the format a little bit which is great actually thank we you need to be <laughs> i appreciate that yeah yeah um we jump now to like we talked about your roots tanya and and your your uh, education how you like your a little bit of your story that led up to the moment where you joined Mosaic, actually. So now we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, you joining, uh, preparing for this experience and how you really um, tackle the whole situation, because this is a gigantic endeavor. And also for the individual preparing for it, it's, it's particular, I would say. So my first question would be, Because Mosaic was planned for such a long time, like eight years. When was for you the time when you found out or like when you decided to join Mosaic? 
Well, that's an interesting story because, as you all know, Matt Shoup is one of the leaders of Mosaic and has been involved since the very, very beginning, um, working with Avi on the development of Mosaic. And when I and I I don't want to talk about Sheba instead of Mosaic, but back when I was at Mos, um, Sheba, and I told you that I was the principal investigator on three projects. I was having a very hard time keeping my projects staffed on the ice because it was very hard to find people that, you know, I didn't come from an Arctic research institution. And so I went out there for the first couple of rotations and I was, I had somebody who was going to stay for the first seven months continuously and I hadn't figured out what to do after he left. And so I was out on the ice one day and, and one of the jobs that the logistics crew had was to move the fuel drums around. So if the ice was shifting or opening up or anything. And so I went out and there was this young man leaning against the fuel drums, reading a paperback and sitting there with his skidoo if in case he had to move anything. And guess who it was? It was Matt Shoup. <laughs> so I asked him, so we got to know each other, of course. And I asked him if he was interested in coming back and helping to run the radars for one of the projects that I had. And he said, sure. And so he actually worked for me at Sheba. And then when it was over, I try. I asked him if he would come to Boulder for a position, and he said yes. And so he joined my new Arctic group that we had because of Sheba. And so for preparing for Mosaic, I didn't have to do anything except for hire Matt Shoup 22 years ago. Because wow! Great. <laughs> good. I would say that was that was a very good move. Did absolutely all the work. He was a leader. It was his concept, all the logistics, all the meeting. I never went to a single meeting, mosaic meeting. And all I did is I told Matt, if it turns out you need somebody, I'm available. Because I perfect. I thought going out to mosaic should be an opportunity for younger science and younger career scientists. And um, so I just was completely made myself available to him as a backup person. And mm -hmm. so he had spreadsheets of personnel he kept moving around. And I kept sitting off the spreadsheet over on the side there, I think. And then finally, he said, well, would you like to go on leg two? And I said, yes. And so that's how I got to Mosaic. I didn't have to prepare anything except for just be ready to go. And I got, I think, maybe wasn't very much, maybe six weeks notice that it was confirmed that I would go on leg two. Okay. That was not long. Well, you came... You came to Germany uh, to get the clothing there, right? Yeah. That was something you had to do. I remember we met there. And I got the medical exam there as well, because it turned out to be easier. It was very hard in the U.S. with our, everybody has different insurance plans and everything. And so it was much easier for me to just come to Germany. And mm -hmm. I was already in a meeting for YAP, for the YAP site MIP in Stockholm. And so it was uh, just a small detour for me to come to Bremerhaven on the way home. And how much was a, an adventure spirit and how much was actually a scientific curiosity that led you to, to then say yes to, to go to Mosaic? Was it like, oh yeah, you know, it, it sounds like a nice experience I want to go. Like it was more the, the scientific activity that was going on there. Well, as I told you, you know, it's hard with Arctic scientists because they're so in love with their work. It's hard to define 
are you in love with it because it's your science or are you in love with it because you're in love with the Arctic? Yeah. I mean, maybe it's like a good marriage. You don't know if you love the person because they love you or they love you because you love them, you know, maybe it's, so I don't know if I can answer that question. I definitely wanted to go on leg two the most because when I was at Sheba, I was out there in the summer and the spring. And so I really wanted to see what the Arctic was like in the middle of winter. Mm -hmm. And so scientifically, I was absolutely, and also over the years as we've done analysis and there have been Arctic data sets, this is the most unknown time period. It's the most undocumented. Right. And, you know, think everybody thinks that everything's just shut down, you know, everything's frozen, all the fluxes go away. But I wanted, you know, that's something that we needed to see for ourselves. And I think one of the important things we did in Lake 2 is we measured the zeros. And that is if it turned out that certain kinds of surface energy budget fluxes were actually zero, we actually needed to measure that zero and confirm that or see if it's a little bit more. We had, um, I know, like some of the methane fluxes that we needed to really we needed to not just have it be theoretical that they were zero like fish we did the fishing i helped with the long line fishing and we caught no fish so we caught zero fish but that was really important because they did catch fish on lake one and on lake three uh -huh. so. so so you measured the zero of the surface energy flux that means there was no energy flux at all For certain terms, okay. for the shortwave terms, and they and and actually, when I say we measured the zeros, we measured if they were really exactly zero or not. Mm -hmm. But they were. You know, there's some, there were. Some of them were. Yeah. There's you know the physical processes and the ecosystem processes all go into sort of a hibernation in the winter time, but we really needed to know how much there was a hibernation mm -hmm. and how much and how active things still were. And how did you actually cope with darkness then? <laughs> Because this is all really exciting. I actually loved being in the dark. Um, I, uh, I, I've been in the Arctic a lot. And, I, you know, with the ISO, the International Arctic Systems Observing the Atmosphere, I spent a lot of time every month of the year in Arctic Canada and Russia and Alaska. And I actually preferred the dark to 24 hours of sunlight. Okay. My body is much more acclimatized to the dark. And when we were leaving and the sun started coming up and we started sailing south on the Drenitsyn, I actually felt slightly phobic about being in the light. Like I felt like I had to adjust to that really slowly. And how was then coming back? Like I didn't have sunglasses. And I was really sorry, and I didn't have my mosaic goggles that had been originally issued to me with uh, smoked, you know, um, smoke glasses. And the one, one of the first things we did, because we were on the dark one, is the logistics crew um, switched out our smoked for clear um, lenses mm -hmm. on our goggles. And um, I wish that I had gotten them switched back and taken them with me for the trip on the Drenitsyn, because if you went up on the bridge or out on the deck, it was just so bright. It was just... So, yeah, it was okay. But even now, like, I'm, I'm just a kind of a person who, if it's sunny, I like to go in the shade. And then if it's, I actually really like days though, and it's raining and it's cloudy. Okay. Yeah. So maybe just for the listeners, um, so Tanil joined like two. So you went. It was December, right? To Polarstern in, in December, right? That was also uh, Kapitan Dranitsin. And then. 
you came back um help us here tanya when did you come back in april we were traveling um i think almost the whole month of march we were on the drinitzen right. so we so we got to we got to um bremerhaven in no we got to Tromsø in late november and we yeah. did a few days of training And then we got on the Dernitsen and then we spent three weeks pretty much exactly as was scheduled mm -hmm. to go out to the Polish Jern. Yeah. And so I think it was, and then we had our changeover. And um, then I think December 12th, 13th was the official beginning of leg um, two because mm -hmm. leg one left on that day. Mm -hmm. And then we were there for December, January, And then February, and February involved a little, maybe a little bit more than two extra weeks because mm -hmm. the incoming leg three took such a long time to get there. Exactly. And then, and then we spent four weeks on the Dronitsen, which is the whole month of March, pretty much coming back. Because it was not clear because of COVID-19 where to go. Right. Yeah. And, and then I actually got back to my house, um, I think on April 3rd or 4th. And that was, and the most terrifying part of the entire mosaic travel for me was getting at the end from Bremerhaven back to Colorado, because that's when all the borders were closing yeah. and the airlines were barely running. And, you know, we had to get from Bremerhaven to Frankfurt to catch flights mm -hmm. and um, the Bremen airport was closed. And um, it was just very kind of spooky, you know, being in Germany and seeing the empty trains and the empty streets and um, not sharing not you're not sure how safe things are yeah yeah and and they kept canceling my flights like my flights they would book a flight for me and then two hours later I'd get a notification it had either been rescheduled or canceled so I really didn't know what flight I was going to get on or if I could be on a flight until the very last minute it was a crazy time it was really for, for everybody but I guess for you for you guys more than than for us because you you were just coming back from from the middle of the of the arctic ocean so also i guess information were not as bombard, bombarding as as for us so coming back to this unreal situation right. must have been surreal at least even a bit frightening for the american you know leg two we left and we came back to a global pandemic yeah and Leg three now left and is now coming back to this situation of huge civil unrest. Right. Yeah. yeah. And um, and then all countries are are trying to figure out what's going to be happening as we're opening up our systems again. Right. You yeah. know, so very unsettled time. Yeah. Okay. I think we can listen to the next piece of music, North Pole Transmission, which is perfectly fitting i would say with with what we're discussing today and you were you were commenting that besides liking liking the music the titles seem so appropriate yeah, can sure. more. <laughs> that's perfect and and what is the band called fc kahuna i think so yeah you know as well as i do how to pronounce okay it, I, <laughs> heard that, i heard that one song and then of course listened to it and then i started listening to some of their other music and i like it quite a lot Tanil, so um, you being on Polarstern, what was actually your role there? I mean, I understood you were the leader of the atmospheric team there, yeah? Yes. Um, Matt asked me if I'd be the leader of the atmosphere team, and I said, sure. 
I didn't have much understanding of what that would entail. But once I got there, I saw that it was really great that each of the teams had a team lead and the team leaders would have meetings with the um, expedition leader, which was mm -hmm. Christian Haas for us. Mm -hmm. And um, my team was very different, I would say, from the other teams. The other teams had a lot of hands-on sampling work that they had to do. They had to go out and drill holes in the ice and collect samples, or they had to run the nets. And these were efforts that took a lot of coordination. And there was also a lot of scheduling so that they could accommodate making the right kind of sampling measurements. And those groups spent a lot of time out on the ice and out in, the, mm -hmm. in their laboratories. And they really had some really intensive schedules that they had to coordinate with their teams. And the atmosphere team was really quite different because we had um, almost entirely automated, continuous running instruments. Really, the on-ice presence for the atmosphere team was just the surface energy balance project. You know, mm -hmm. we had the tower, the microbiological tower at the Met City, at the Central Observatory. And then we had these at the L sites, the three remote sites, um, that were the sort of the intensive remote sites. We had our um, automated surface flux stations and we had to like check in on those, but they were meant to run on their own. Mm -hmm. And we were only supposed to go there if there were problems. And there, there were problems, so we ended up going there quite a bit by the helicopters. But the rest of the atmosphere team, the Department of Energy ARM program and the Tropos and the PSI, um, they had these, uh, oh, and University of Colorado with the um, trace gases. Mm -hmm. Those were all containers that were on the ship, packed full of instruments. And they were all connected to inlets that were um, on the containers, or they had instruments up on the ship masts and stuff like that. So it was for the for our group, everybody kind of knew what they had to do with their own containers and were in charge of that. Okay. And so I didn't have a lot. Of, I, I What I told my team was my job is to make your job easy. And so we didn't have like the ice team had really heavily scheduled meetings every morning where they mm -hmm. came up with a whole plan for deployment plan for the day. About who's doing what and who's going to run the ice drill and who's going to do that. And with my team, I would just, I had sort of the morning red salon hours where I would try to hang out in the red salon and people could come by and we would just very informally talk things out. And um, we would schedule usually a trip out to Met City every day to check on all the sensors. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, it was a really a great team. I feel like our team had a little bit more time to do analysis mm -hmm. and look at some of our results while we were there, which was really interesting. I understood you kind of coordinated all this, you know, all the different instruments, why people had their certain tasks to do whatever they checking on this instrument and checking that this works. So what was your favorite instrument then? I mean, where did you go the the most? I mean, was it Balloon Town or, yeah. No, I would say the um, automated surface flux systems at the L sites were the ones that I just... I mean, I'm going to do a presentation for this um, educational group, and I think I'm going to make it a story of just the automated surface flux stations. This was the kind of sled thing 
the big one we had also a picture on the newsletter the polar predict newsletter um yeah where m many different instruments were installed at right that's right and it was sort of a in terms of the data it was collecting it was sort of a condensed version of what was being collected by our tower at met city as well as all the radiation sensors that mm -hmm. arm was also deploying at met city so we had kind of put everything into this little package and figured out a fueling system so it could be left alone theoretically you know for 30 days or so and so oh, i actually okay. helped build that sensor a little bit in boulder it's like i built some of the cables and i did a lot of the labeling of two ends because when it's dark and it's the middle of the winter and it's really cold and you have to fix something and you have a thousand cables in there you want to know what each end is you need to be able to find the other end of cables so you need to label things yeah and um so um I helped them put that package together a little bit and they they went through this whole thing for years. You're talking about preparations that I didn't do any work on, designing the sled and figuring out how to put these whole systems together. And so when we were working on them in Boulder, it was so hot, I can't even tell you. We thought we were going to have heat stroke working on those systems. And we had to leave all the boxes wide open with yeah. fans so they wouldn't overheat because they had been designed to stay warm in the Arctic. Wow. And so what the first trip I had out to the L site with the helicopter on leg two and we landed in the dark on the ice and we weren't quite sure where the station was and we're looking around with our headlamps. And when I saw it out there in the dark in the ice and I heard this little humming noise so that I knew that the fueling system was working. And I felt like we had built a space shuttle and it had landed on another planet and I had gotten to go to another oh, planet wow. and see it landed there. And it was just, it just, I mean, I literally had my heart pitter-pattered, you know. It's just so exciting seeing the system working. And that is also the system where we had one ridging event for the one at L3 and the whole thing. We've had those dramatic pictures of where it got tipped up by the ridge. Mm -hmm. And the great thing is, is that we were able to recover it and slide it. You know, the sled design turned out to be quite brilliant that we were able to slide it off and we recovered most of the instruments off of it. And that, and then when leg three came along, I think they sling loaded it to the central observatory and put it back together. Mm -hmm. But the important thing about the surface flux station systems also is I think they're also the future that we will improve on that design and we will try to use those into the future permanently for making these kind of measurements mm -hmm. on the Arctic ice. And I think they're really important that we need for just the global observing network system. We need to have the surface energy budget numbers. Yeah. So, so what is it measuring? I mean, surface energy. When I say surface mm -hmm. energy, it's like heat and energy. And so what you're looking at, your mm -hmm. primary source, of course, is the sun. And so that's shortwave energy. Mm -hmm. So we measure how much shortwave energy is coming in. And then some of that gets reflected, very little in the winter, but a lot, and you know, when the, um, in the summer, well, first of all, there's almost, there's no solar energy in the wintertime, or there shouldn't be. So that should be one yeah. of our zeros, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And in the summertime, it'll, you know, watching the cycle come up um, in the um, summertime of the solar energy fluxes, both in and out. And then also seeing the diurnal cycle, the day-night cycle, 
that you have in the Arctic is really important mm -hmm. because that's your energy input. And then the long wave energy is when the earth absorbs the shortwave energy or clouds absorb the shortwave energy, they re-reflect it at a different wavelength, which is the long wave. So we also are measuring the incoming long wave and outgoing long wave, which in the winter, you still have lots of because the clouds that are there still are, ref are um, reflecting energy back to the surface and the surface is losing energy because it's so cold, which is why things start freezing. And then there's these little bit more complicated ones, which are called the turbulent fluxes, and they're sensible heat flux and latent heat flux. And those are a function of phase changes and then also just the mechanical um, transfer of heat in and out. But if you add all those things up, okay. you get the net energy exchange. And it tells you what's going between the atmosphere and the surface underneath, whether it's um, in the Arctic, an open ocean surface, or if it's the ice, or if it's the snow on top of the ice. And to me, that's almost the most important number that we will measure in all of mosaic or in the Arctic, because that's the number that's controlling yeah. whether the ice is growing or shrinking, whether the snow is accumulating, how much the snow is um, insulating things, how much energy is going into the ocean, getting either through the ice or directly into the ocean. And, um, you know, this entire planet um, is running right. on energy from the sun. That's where the energy for the entire life cycle, the hydrological cycle, the chemical cycle comes from on this planet is from the sun. And it's with these surface energy balances is like we get that number that everything else contributes to, yeah. to let you know if you're going to be warming or cooling. Well, we look so much uh, forward to seeing the results eventually published at some point from these atmospheric flux stations. Mm -hmm. Um Yes. At the moment, I mean, Polarstern is has now left um, the ice flow, and um, it was really unstable. Are these um, surface flux stations still um, installed on the L sites? Are they staying there, or have they been packed? Do you know that? There, what they did is one, the one at L2. My understanding is got crushed by a ridge okay. and was completely unrecoverable during Lake Three. And I think the L, the one from L3 was, I know that one was brought back to the station right after we left. And I'm, and I think L1 ended up coming back to this. I'm, per, I'm pretty sure L1's back at the station too. But what they did yeah. is Chris Cox, uh, who's out there now working on that project. He is just, uh, did this incredible engineering job and he put together that, He put together a system. So there is one surface flux station still running at the cool. Central Observatory right now. And it's got a couple of these different fueling systems sort of hooked together, trying to keep it running until the polar stern gets back there. So we are still measuring those fluxes. And we got the most incredible data that he sent back to us because mm -hmm. he's getting the data through an iridium link. And he captured the start of melt season because everything changes completely with these surface energy balances yeah. when you go from uh, into the melt season and everything you just everything changes suddenly wow and he we just got the most amazing data that came back from that so we're very excited on this team about that i mean i know you can't really talk about unpublished data here but uh That, that would be great to see. And I guess there will be lots of publications out about yeah. this. 
Well, Matt Shoup has already given a presentation. I know. I think he's on the sun. Sunny? Sana? Mm-hmm. Sana. Mm-hmm. He's on the sauna, and I know he's already put together a presentation for the group there. So oh, cool. we, we should probably solicit him to see what we could, um, yeah. you know, put out there for people to see soon. Because not only is it our data from the surface flux station, but we also have data from the snow ice mass balance buoy right next to it, which is showing what's going on in the ice, the snow, and the ocean at the same time, where you also see this transition into melt season, which is one of the it's one of the big, big, it's pr- maybe the biggest, most interesting event that happens in the Arctic. Yeah. Is melt season. It's right. the beginning of melt season. Yeah. And people haven't been able to really cover that by measurements so far. So, not, not be, in that location. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's yeah. really going to be unique. That would be great. Okay, Tanya, we have another song. Again, FC Kahuna hailing. Don't don't think about all the things you fear. Just be glad to be here. You said that would be the perfect theme song for Mosaic. Yes. It's like as we all went trooping out onto the ice every day, that would have been like the perfect <laughs> music to be playing in the background. So now, uh, Tanil, we are interested in one question we always ask um, participants. The most important question of the of the whole ice pod. And you are a pro, pro listener, so I know you're waiting for it. Uh, so about this jacket, I can want I can only assume that you are part of the atmosphere uh, team, but are you actually what is your team jacket? I don't have a jacket. Whoa. I know we but I so my only jacket story is is that um maybe talks about all the people behind Mosaic who didn't actually get to go out to the ice camp. Mm-hmm. And for our team in Boulder, there is a woman named Sarah Morris, who has been the science coordinator. And the reason that she did not get to go out to Mosaic was because she has a very young baby. And she had to make that very difficult choice about whether she could be away from her child. And she very correctly decided not. I mean, you know, and she, and she, but, but her, I think, you know, she has been, her heart has been out at Mosaic with all of us and she's been supporting us tremendously. And you might've met her at the launch in Trump. So she was out there um, as part of the logistics team, helping get everything prepared. So she got an atmosphere jacket and that got delivered in Trumpso to Lake three And Chris Cox, who was very restricted on weight because he was supposed to come out by airplane, mm-hmm. he brought the jacket out to me at Mosaic. So it sort of was blessed it has officially been to the Mosaic Ice Camp. And then I carried it back to Boulder for her. And they're really great jackets. But I have to say, I, I didn't order one. Yeah. This is anyway a great jacket story. That's what that's so, all we care so Sarah, about. Okay. It's about that's a, like a great Sarah jacket. I'm so happy story. to have this jacket and. Uh, Yes, <laughs> she's so happy. And what they do with the atmosphere team with all the teams, you know, is the mosaic logo was so great because it showed each of the five teams. Mm-hmm. And then for your jacket, you could have um, your team, you know, your part of the logo be highlighted. Yeah. Okay. And I would say, why do I not have a jacket? Maybe it's because I have a f- almost 40-year career now of doing field experiments, and I have this giant stack of field <laughs> experiment T-shirts and jackets that I never wear. That's a good <laughs> totally understandable. Yeah. yeah. 
but because we we touched on the on the atmosphere we want to discuss a little bit more about and we discussed already about yours uh you'll be an atmospheric scientist mm -hmm. and on this section of the interview we would like to touch also on yop the europolar prediction because you're heavily involved in the in the activities of uh of yop and so um my first question would be how how does your work or like in in which way or if or if at all uh the work that you carried out on mosaic and how will be translated into into yop somehow Well, that is a really great question, Sarah. Thank you for asking that. And you'll have to probably tell me to stop talking. So I'll try to be... No, concise. we will let you speak as long as you want. <laughs> When I first went out and we had our first team lead meetings, I um, told Christian Haas and the rest of the team leads, I said, I want to come. I said, I want to be completely transparent here that I am out here and I will be the atmosphere team leader for Mosaic. But I am also a YAP spy yes and by that i mean i want to see specifically for the year polar prediction what kind of data is being i want to see myself what kind of data is being collected and make the collaborator connections that we need so this data can be and i gave a couple of yacht presentations to mosaic people because um i think that mosaic everybody has their individual research projects and they develop these core parameters but the the direction out is very much towards um, uh, doing individual research projects with the data that we collected just at Mosaic. But Mosaic is such an important, um, what we call YAP super site. Mm -hmm. And, but it's not the only one. The other YAP super sites are, we have to realize all the Arctic countries have observatories on the coast or near the coast of the Arctic Ocean. So there's almost like a ring of observatories, which for, of course, not the ocean, but they do it for the terrestrial system instead. But they are collecting, especially for the atmosphere, all the same measurements that are being collected at Mosaic. And they have been collecting these um, continuously for many, many years. So we have, I feel like with the With YAP, we have this opportunity to have, from an observation standpoint, a snapshot of the Arctic because we have all these observatories running and then we have the mosaic data in the middle. And it is going to be the most powerful, incredibly powerful observing year. Mm -hmm. And so what YAP is doing is they are doing these special, um, and this is where the YAP site net comes in, they're doing model observation experiments where the modelers are all extracting um, a grid point or a family of grid points around each YAP super site. And they're pulling, when the models run, they usually report out their results like maybe on hourly basis, sometimes even only on a six hourly basis. And, but they're actually doing calculations on much shorter time scales, like seven and a half minutes or 15 minutes, but they usually don't have those intermediate calculations where they're doing all these different little process calculations, they usually don't keep those numbers. And so the yacht modelers are actually extracting this high time resolution data over each of the yacht super sites, and then for this mosaic year over the mosaic ship. So we're gonna have this really interesting um, model data set that what they wanna do is now look at the observations and see how well the model is capturing these processes that we're measuring directly. Mm -hmm. um, all these incredible complex 
in comprehensive suite of sensors at Mosaic and at the Super sites. And this is this is part of the Yop sitemap uh, project that you're together with Gunilla Svensson uh, leading. We had uh, um, an, a bonus episode with Gunilla Svensson on the targeted observing period uh, just recently. Uh -huh. um, so, so what are the? I mean, Polarstern is one of these Yop sitemap stations, like Yop Super sites, right? Yeah. And the difficulty is, is if you run a model, then you have all the different variables are in that one model, right? Yeah. Or you can, and I know it's not this simple. I always tease the modelers. I said, you write two more lines of code and you can generate five more variables and it's very easy for you and you don't have any data gaps and the polar bear doesn't eat up some of your variables for certain time periods. And, um, For the observationalist, the difficulty is being is the variables that they want to compare to are being collected by so many different instruments in so many different formats in so many different institutions. And so I think that that is a tremendous roadblock for doing the model observation intercomparisons and experiments that they want to do. Mm -hmm. And so and so my vision is that I don't know if we can do it or not, but I want to create what I call these merged observatory data files where the modelers will specify which variables they want and we will try to get everything in in some consistent format into just one merged observation file. Mm -hmm. But this is turning out to be a tremendously difficult task. And um, it's like I say, I, I call it my vision and some people say it's my hallucination <laughs> that we will even no. be able to do this. And I'm actually, and we're finding out, but we are making, we are making an attempt to do that now. And we will do that. We are going to try to have something called the MMODF, which is the merged mosaic observatory data file. And then we have a number of the stations around the Arctic. We're trying to put together these um, um, MODS, merged observatory data files. And you're going to have a workshop to meet with the people to really discuss how this uh, merged observatory data files can look like, right? We've already had some meetings about what they will look like. And we, okay. have, we have some people who have been working tirelessly behind the scenes. And what I would like to do, what I'm hoping we can do is actually have, I, I have, I've sort of reached out to the different observatories. And now that I've been at Mosaic myself, and I know how to get into the MCS and you know the Mosaic data system, I'm hoping that we can build some a merged mosaic data file and a merged observatory data files and actually have some examples done by t before we have the workshop. Because okay. workshops are so often about planning about how we're going to do work. And I think I, we, I'm, I'm, I am ready now. I think that the work has been defined and we need to do it. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to have another workshop about planning what they would look like. I would actually come to the workshop with them. And we've also specified to the modelers what the model output should look like. So it looks the same between different models. Yeah. Because it's really complicated. Different models will call their variables different things. Yeah. And different models will have different units for different things. And, you know, it's the same thing with the observations and the kind of units um, scientific units that they use in models versus um, observations is very, very different. And it's all those little teeny tiny details that makes it very, very difficult to proceed with any kind of actual research and re analysis. I mean, the most simple one is the modelers use degrees Kelvin instead of degrees C. 
Yeah. And probably you can think about that if you're doing mathematical calculations, you don't want to cross zero if you don't have to. I'd imagine it's much easier, you know, to keep things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those are, there's so many teeny tiny little details like that, that I feel like really slow things down. And there's um, a great statement about environmental intelligence, about doing research not just the traditional way with individual little research papers that sometimes can take years to develop and you only have one or two people who really understand the data sets that are involved. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're trying to work now is something where we can really, not just for YAP, but I think for Mosaic, if we think about this next step about how we organize our data, not just getting individual data sets into Pangea or on the, you know, on the Avi portal, I think that we can really expedite the research. And it won't be just for Mosaic or Yop, but I mean, for any future modeling um, efforts, it mm -hmm. would be very beneficial to have this, right? The, yes, there are actually the climate modelers have been doing these um, comparison data sets where they specify formats for the models so that they can mm -hmm. actually intercompare. So we're actually taking that um, idea from them. Yeah. And actually the ARM program, which is out at Mosaic, they have also created for just for their products, they have also created these merged observation data files. So we had the thought, but we found out that there are other people who have played around with this, but it could be that Mosaic will be the first time that we will really get observations and modeling data, what I call on the same page. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So that together. we can really go forward fast with the science. Because if you think about a um, societal needs for Mosaic, and people always ask that when they do an interview, we have little kids, you know, small kids from, you know, very young ages and say, well, why is Mosaic important? And why is it not just an adventure and a scientific, you know, thing just for the individual researchers. Why is this important for the rest of the world? And that's why my experience with Sheba is it was 22 years ago, and people are still writing papers using the Sheba data. It has taken, yeah. and I, we're not done yet. Yeah. And I hope with Mosaic that we can go much, much faster. I see. And since when... Tanya, are you working on this effort? I mean, how many years? How many? When did you become involved in Yop also? Um, I mean, these I are two know, questions now. But you know better than I do. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I know when it was. It was um, Arctic Science Summit Week that was in Davos. That was in 2018. Yeah. Okay, 2018. And um, Thomas was there and you were having a PPP steering group meeting. And I had read about the YAP objectives and I was very interested. So I kind of, I kind of barged my way in and I asked right. them if yeah. I could be on the steering committee. Yeah. And, and I've been a terrible steering committee meeting member because I haven't made it to a single face-to-face. -face <laughs> <laughs> either their one was because there was the U.S. government shutdown. And so yeah, I couldn't year, true. And then I think the next one I was actually out of Mosaic. Mm -hmm. And so I've had great excuses, but I have never actually showed up for us. I just wanted to say, I mean, you're so active, so so that <laughs> that may be fine. <laughs> I think you're doing great anyway, also from from remote. <laughs> so no, but I think I think I think Mosaic's partnership with Yap 
is going to make a huge step forward towards making that research that we do with mosaic data really relevant to services, which is basically, you know, forecasting yeah. uh, the environment for people and also stewardship, learning to plan how we can. And, and that comes from my NOAA background because NOAA has a research division that I'm in, but we are not what we call um, blue sky, which is just research for knowledge sake. We are also doing research very specifically to develop services for society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which yeah, which is an important part, especially now during the consolidation phase of the year of polar prediction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, to translate the science efforts actually into services and products. Yeah, yeah, and of course, because YAP is a child of the World Meteorological Organization, so of course it would have that yeah. end goal always in mind. Yeah, exactly. Just briefly, um, because it's it's actually pretty interesting to hear f- from you now, because we just had uh, this, this conversation pretty much uh, talking about your site map and, and the efforts with Gunilla, and you're kind of the yin to the yang. So we had the modeler uh, perspective, and now you have we have the observationalist perspective. So also for the listeners, if you haven't already, there is a bonus episode with Gunilla. And so just go back and listen to, to it to have also the perspective from Gunilla Svensson. I definitely will. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We have another song, Dust It Off. The Du, I guess it's pronounced with the, this O, with the, this Norwegian O. Yeah. Um, and you say it's about exploring your inner self. Uh, I think we do a lot of that while we are explo- uh, exploring the world in a place like the Central Arctic Ocean. I just love this music for some reason. It was a theme song in a movie that I watched. And I usually, you know, you hear the music in movies. And this one I liked so much, I actually researched and found it and just discovered this group. But I, I, I just love the music in this one for some reason. Yeah. Okay. Then we listen to Dust It Off. But this is also a good lead into the next sesh, uh, section because we want to talk a bit more about uh, the time you didn't spend as a scientist on board, but um, as an artist. Um, mm-hmm. You created this great picture in the Polarstern guest book, which uh, we are now um, thinking about featuring in the next um, Polar Predict News newsletter. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so tell us more about that, Taniel. Well, first of all, every time I go on a vacation or I go on any kind of field trip, I usually pack all these art supplies. And I would say I almost never, I mean, I always have very, very little time. And so my output is very, very small. Not this time. <laughs> well, actually, it was still pretty small. Uh, well, the what, when we were getting towards the end of leg two, the captain was coming to our daily meetings and he started saying that somebody needs to put something in the guest book. He said, that's really important. And if, you know, even if you just go, I'll sign your names on a page or anything, he said, you, but there must be a guest book entry. That was absolutely critical. And looking at the guest book is when I really understood about the Polar Stern mm-hmm. and that PS-122 meant that we were the 122nd cruise that the Polar Stern had done. Yeah. And because Mosaic had legs that we were 122-2 because we were the 122nd cruise and we were the second leg. 
So nobody was filling anything in. And so I was thinking, okay, maybe I can do this. But um, the reason I started this little thing is we had this great thing called pictures of the day every day. So when we had our evening meetings, the first thing that we would do is we would look at our position and we would look at the conditions of the ice and um, we would discuss business. But I think everybody's favorite part was this pictures of the day. And um, everybody just during the day would take pictures of anything great going on or interesting going on. And then they would just put it in this folder before the meeting. So the, I would say that every single little tiny piece of picture, um, I probably took it from a picture of the day. Okay. So you took a photo and made a drawing out of it. I, I, I would draw a little piece like... Um, Like the one time we had a bear come through the observatory, you know, that was just caught on camera. And so if you go find the camera, you know, capture of the bear and you look at my little tiny bear picture that I have down there, you can see that that directly came from that okay. picture. And um, even like the picture of the piston bully and there, there is a picture of the piston bully. So somewhere there is a photo probably behind every single part of that picture. And the other thing that I did is I got little tiny thumbnails of actual data. Mm -hmm. Like, especially the snow people would do these incredible, you know, they'd make these tiny thin slices, and then they would run it through these electron scanning, whatever they were doing, and they would come up with all these beautiful colors, and it looked like abstract art. And, you know, to them, the colors meant different things about the crystal size or granularity. So if you look in that picture closely, there's all these little tiny thumbnails, or there'll actually be a picture of the salinity profile or the clouds measured by the LIDAR above the site. So it was really, really fun to do that. And as I was doing it, I went around to people and I showed it in draft versions. Mm -hmm. And asked them if there was something that was missing that I should include Approved by scientists, then. <laughs> It was proved. And then the other thing that I did is I asked people, what's your number? And they said, what do you mean by that? And I said, if there's one number that you're coming in out of like two, what is it the number? And is it going to be the latitude furthest north that we went? Or is it the Raywinson that went the highest? Or what is your number? So if you look, there's little tiny white circles that if you write in, it'll have a number like, um, I can't remember the number exactly, but for one of the um, eco people, it was the number of liters of water that they filtered. And it was like 4,236 wow. or something like that. Okay. So there is one thing that must be done if you're going to publish that. Um, is if you look in the top left-hand corner, I think, It has 83.36 degrees or 84.36 degrees. And that was our furthest north latitude that in leg two, we were very preoccupied with our furthest north latitude. We were trying to get to the North Pole. We really wanted to hit 90 degrees and we were the leg that we were moving farther and farther north. In the logbook, I actually, I realized when we were in the Dronitzen that I had put the wrong number there. <laughs> and I asked, and actually you might have the correct one because I might have, I should know what that number is. But anyways, I actually asked somebody on the Dronitzen to go correct it in the log, in the guest book. Oh, okay. So it's okay. correct in there, but there, but there are copies of that floating around. I think that I corrected it by hand in the version that you have. 
We actually got a scan. I asked Stephanie Arndt, who is the leader of the ICE team currently, and I asked, and she found a very nice high-resolution scan of it in some of the folders. Um, so she didn't even scan herself, but uh, she found the scan. So I can send it to you, and you can check which version it is. That would be great because I've been trying to find that scan because that was done by request. Um, some other people requested it so they'd have a copy um, from Lake 2, and that was done by Sisman did that for us, Andreas, when we, when we were on the ship. Okay. And I couldn't find my copy of that scan, but that copy of the scan should be proliferating the wrong latitude. So, <laughs> But... It's very interesting with that being such an important number and how many people who looked at that mosaic that nobody caught that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it happens. <laughs> but, but are you, I mean, how is drawing in your life? I mean, is it, is it something you always, you said you always do that uh, at a cruise or where, when you go somewhere? Is it also something you do at home or did you learn drawing or... No, I just do it. It's a, it's a hobby. You know, yeah. it's nothing that I, I mean, I have an art studio. I like to paint. I like to do collages. I like to do watercolors and sketches and multimedia stuff. And I, I, it's one of those things that I'm always saying, oh, I need to do this more often, but yeah. I'm usually so busy that I don't get around to it. Yeah. And, um, but I'm sort of, well, I kind of been moving that this room that I'm in now was my art studio and I just, <laughs> my art studio is kind of disassembled right now, but. Yeah, I have a lot of art things that I do. And I just I just like to do that. It's yeah. just, I like doing small things to big things. And, um, but I did do very much on Polar Stern. And um, one thing I did do on the Polar Stern is I knit hats. Oh. And so whenever we were in a meeting, I was knitting. And I took enough wool for 10 different hats. And I actually knit 10 hats when I was out there and I gave them all away to people. And I have one thing that I have, I think I have a picture of most of the hats that I knit. Wow. So I'm thinking about putting together a little mosaic of all my mosaic hats. Cool. A real Tanil hat. Yes. <laughs> well, I would be proud to have one of those. So people can be really happy. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was really fun because some people were just so excited to have a hand knit hat you know and it was really mm -hmm. yeah. they really liked it yeah. and so, cool. yeah I'm always really happy when I look at pictures of Lake too and I see somebody go by in one of my hats yeah and also did you because you said you're you're dancing did you also do some dance on Polarstern while you were there I didn't. There was actually one person who was um, running, and I've, I've been kind of, I've been actually specifically not mentioning people by name, but there was somebody there who was a tango dancer, and she was having these great tango dancing classes. And wow. I, I went a couple times and watched the tango dancing classes, but that's a couple's dancing thing. And I do more of sort of a un really unstructured, you know, sort of like a modern dance kind yeah. of thing. So it was really fun for me to watch. And sometimes I would dance around in the background of the tango dancers just doing my own steps and stuff. But yeah, but yeah, there was a great tango dance group. Actually, the tango dance group was just on the drinks and coming back wow. when people had extra energy and needed to fill their time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. True. Tania, you brought another song, and that actually leads into the next section. Um, it's uh, the song is called "Castle" by Halsey, um, and you wrote to us about the song, maybe about being a senior woman researcher, 
and the atmosphere team lead. Some of the young men on my team called me team mom. Yeah. <laughs> Must have been a comment on my management style. Well, maybe it's, I mean, the song, the part of the lyrics I catch is like going off, you know, going to the castle. So I feel like, you know, I was one of the senior scientists on board. So I kind of feel like I'm at the top of my career now, you know, at the pinnacle of my career where so many people are early career and they're starting it. And there's a lot of young people at Mosaic who are early career mm -hmm. and some mid career. Um, but, you know, there actually were very few people, probably end career scientists. So I felt like maybe that, you know, that was kind of for like me going to the castle. And then there's also a refrain in there that you ought to be nice. <laughs> But I really love Halsey because you know where this song comes from is um, it's about female power. Yeah. You know, because I, Anya was the only woman on my team. I had, I had, I had if, almost the biggest team, if not the biggest team out there. Mm -hmm. And Anya was the only woman. Wow. And, um, I mean, how does it feel also now, maybe you being a senior researcher, a female senior researcher, still seeing that there's, I mean, there hasn't, there has changed a little. So there are more women now in science, but not as much as we would wish for, right? Well, you know, at Mosaic, I was so impressed that I never did a count. But, you know, just your, you know, your feeling was it was a pretty good balance between women and men. I mean, there definitely were, you know, more men, but, and the women were all so completely, um, I mean, I felt I felt about the mosaic crew, scientist crew that was out there. I like I felt like I was working with superheroes. You know, I mean, I just couldn't believe how incredibly competent and directed. I mean, it was like it was just amazing to me. I mean, I watch all those science fiction, or you know, I, I watch a lot of um, Marvel comic kind of movie stuff. You know, with superhero mm -hmm. teams, and that's how I felt about the. Um, young people that were there and a lot of them that were women, um, you know, and they're just, I, I didn't feel like there was any, and maybe I missed it. And I was kind of, I didn't feel like there were any kind of issues at all with women in the field that I hear people talking about a lot. I don't know if some of the other women scientists might not have felt that way, but mm -hmm. I just felt like there were a lot of very powerful personalities that were um, just really great field scientists. And I didn't see that, that there were any issues between the men and the women at all. I felt like the teams were working together really well, really seamlessly, regardless of that. And back at Shiva, there was much less balanced. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, for instance, I had a colleague who was on the Winter League of Sheba. And except for the ship's nurse, she was the only woman on board that ship. Wow. Can you can you remind us again? When what year was that Sheba? 1987 to 88. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so that was a really big difference. Yeah, that's true. I mean, The feeling is, it's great to hear actually that it was uh, that it was a good dynamic. The feeling is that it's still, for a large part, a man's world somehow. Like not maybe necessarily polar science, but science in general. It's it still feels like mm -hmm. I don't know. There are holdbacks. How do you how do you think is that the case? Do you think so? 
I hope I hope it's more of a generational thing. I mean, I think Kirsten, you're seeing with Yap, you know, the participation between. I mean, there is very vigorous precipitation and very even participation with both leadership and contributions with Yap. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that that Yap is not a male-dominated activity at all. I don't think. I mean, you think you've got Gunilla and Barbara and myself, and we are being very active, you know, members of yeah. all of that. Um, you, your, your work with yeah. Thomas, you know, I don't know. I would like to hope, I think it might be a generational thing. I mean, I think, I think the biggest issue that we have is that you have people in my generation tend to be mm-hmm. men and you kind of, you kind of need my generation to mm-hmm. clear out. Okay. You know, I, I am so interested in what I'm doing and being a scientist and doing analysis, but I'm now definitely at an age where people are starting to say, well, when are you going to retire? And I don't want to retire, but I probably will retire just to clear out the space for the next generation to come in. Mm -hmm. Because I think people who hang in there long, you know, you know, long after their eligible retirement age, Mm -hmm. and they keep, and to my mind is they should really, and I feel like this way with politics too, I feel like with politicians and scientists, it's like we really need to clear out for the next generation. And for me, it won't mean I need to stop being a scientist. I mean, my father retired when he was 65, and he wrote 17 books after he was retired. Oh, wow. And he did that without having like having to apply for grants or because, you know, all the data is there. So in terms of doing research, there will be nothing to stop me from continuing to be doing research. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I could still serve, you know, if people want as an an advisory capacity. And um, I mean, I hope that I'll keep working with people and being a scientist after I retire. But I do, I, I, and I, and I want to do that because I look and like I said, this is getting back to the question you said is how are we going to take care of this problem? And I think that right now you have the senior level is still very male dominated and that group really needs to clear out. And then I think that as it clears out, I think the people your age, you'll see coming in that things will be much more even. I think it's not only clearing out the older generations, but um, providing longer term positions earlier on. I mean, these days you can get a three year position with a full project, but then it's done. Then you need to Almost, I mean, starting a year after you started with this position, you have to write a new proposal for another project and so on and so on. And um, for, I mean, for the years in the career for women, it's really hard to to cope with this challenge. I think that, and, and it goes back to what you said, like the fact that I've been with Noah pretty much my entire career. Well, not pretty much my entire career. I was so lucky to come yeah. into this permanent government research position. And I have, I've been working with my laboratory director and he was actually really great. And now part of, I'm really into what I call succession planning. And like I said, they say, what do you, want to do or what's your you know what's going to be on your performance plan for this year and I say you should only have one thing in there is my performance plan should be to make myself obsolete and like building the team of people that are going to continue this work and Mm -hmm. so I did get 
I managed to get two of the people in my group converted into a federal positions. So I think that that is the success. And, but I feel like people at my stage should be doing that. They should be identifying younger people. And, you know, you have to let go of your ego, you know, because like I said, you don't have to stop being a scientist. There's nothing to stop you from being a scientist still. There's nothing to stop anybody True. from being a scientist. And, um, you know, you, you know, if you have some other way to support yourself, if you were lucky, you know, that you don't have to, you know, you have a rich spouse or family money or something like that, there's nothing to stop anybody from being a scientist because data is all available online. And, yeah. and as a matter of fact, I feel like maybe I want to retire so I can be a scientist and not mm -hmm. be a program manager and a bureaucrat and go to panel meetings. Um, you know, I'm just so interested now in actually looking at data and doing analysis. And it's almost impossible for somebody like me to do that. We should make t-shirts with this. I th it, it's, it really, mm -hmm. it's, it's exactly, I think, one of the issues. Like, you, it doesn't really mean it, or at least at a certain point, like when you build your career, you have a lot of experience and you have, you know, also certain power from mm -hmm. coming from experience there should be nothing or like it should not be the whole thing to hold that position in order to maybe establish yourself or like having right. or go go on with the with the career i i completely love and i love that that you said you would like to retire in order to be a scientist that's great yeah yeah because i think one of the biggest problems that we have with a science and being scientists is you spend so much of your time on the process and the process sometimes can keep you from making any progress. And I think we spend so much time, you know, making plans about how we're going to do things, but then we never actually do them. And the reason we never are able to actually do them is there's not any kind of a funding base. Like, yeah, it's got a real problem now in which why I say, I don't know if these merged observatory data files, that requires a lot of work for somebody. That means resources. That means somebody has to be paid to do that. And um, it's true for the modelers, for the modelers to create this modeling output, you have to find somebody who can make that part of their job description, like Guanilla and Barbara and Johnny Day have done for the modeling, and which I'm trying to build a team now for the observationalists about so that. But somebody actually has to do all that work. Um, and I think that there's so many Arctic meetings right now that it's all about all these groups get together and they spend all this time on this process, you know, coming up with a process, but then they don't ever actually make any progress on it because there's not anybody to actually do the work. So do you feel like going back to the, do you feel like the permanent positions, the few permanent positions that are available in Germany, do those preferentially go to men or do only men apply to them because they're not worried about families being such a hindrance? I mean, it's it's hard to say. Often we are thinking, okay, there is no uh, there is no women available for these positions, and I think that happens often to people who who um, announce positions. But um, I mean, we put some effort now also to make the announcement more attractive to to women, mm -hmm. um, so so that they would even apply. You know, because often um, I think um, how you been being raised in Germany, it's often as a uh, female would not, would be too shy. They would not uh, think that they could do this. Yes. And so they wouldn't even apply. So I think there's one thing really in the early education of, of kids, both uh, 
boys and girls um, that makes girls being more confident with what they can do. Mm -hmm. So that is one thing. And then, I mean, it's, yeah, it's also the main stage in the career. And at the same time, having a family built up um, that makes women often saying, okay, I can't, I can do that. So that is one part, at mm -hmm. least I would, I could consider. I don't know what you think. I think women, maybe a little bit more than men. I think men, I think young men too. And like I said, things getting tangled up with um, process versus progress, you know, mm -hmm. is when you get a job, what you're trying to do is you think the job is to be approved by the person that hired you. Mm -hmm. But when you are hired as a scientist, your job is to do science. And so, um, you know, throughout my career, I mean, when I had my children, I mean, definitely I had people, I was called into the office and I was almost like kind of reprimanded for my performance. And, and I, um, they would say, well, you know, your performance hasn't been really great. And I said, you know what, I've worked here for, you know, I, however many years it was before I had children, probably almost 10 years. And I said, my performance is not going to be great while my children are young. And I said, I've watched everybody in this laboratory. I've seen men scientists who got divorced and their performance wasn't great, or they got sick and their performance wasn't yeah. great. I said, I'm going to be back working more and more on this as my children get older. And that's just the way it is. And I was very lucky that I had this permanent federal position. And so I could be, you know, very confident about, you know, making that position, you know. If you have more senior women managers, that would be understanding, you know, when you're going through, your, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. what you're going through with a family. So, um, yeah, just because when you have a, it won't, your life won't change into that state of being a young parent permanently. You'll be able to cycle back to where you can put a heavier emphasis and more energy into your work. And so just remember that. I think this is a very good recommendation for all the young scientists yes, who are yeah. out there listening to this episode. <laughs> Yeah, we have another piece of music. Uh, get me out of here. Steve Aoki. When the Capitan Janitsi was late, I turned on the, uh, on the in-cabin radio, in my blaster cabin, and the chorus of the song playing was Get Me Out of Here. <laughs> so that was completely understandable. Yeah, it was just funny because it was heavy rock thing. Get me out of here, get me out of here. And it was so funny. I was just laughing when I was getting... <laughs> To it, and I actually didn't know who the music was from, but because I remembered that, I went through. I just did a search about songs that have that "get me out of here," and I'm not sure this was the right one, but this seemed like the closest. <laughs> so this is also one of the recording part of our of our episodes that uh, we have a question from the previous um, guest which uh, poses a question to our next guest. And in this case, it was Anja Sommerfeld. So it was actually a, a, your team, the teammate. Uh, and she wanted to know, uh, how did your sleep schedule change on Polashten compared to normal life, if at all? No, I um, have been in Arctic a lot, and I feel like this is someplace I was really, really experienced because I see people get on very odd sleep schedules when they're either in 24 hours of light or 24 hours of dark. So I have like this personal regimen that I go to sleep. I get into my bed at the same time every night, um, which for me was like 10 o'clock, and 
if I can't go to sleep, then I just, um, you know, it's so cozy on the Polar Stern because you get into your little bunk and you close your little curtains and you have your own little light, you know. And um, I would usually read if I couldn't go to sleep. Sometimes I would actually do some of my little sketches up there. And um, I would just do something really quiet in bed until I was sleepy enough to fall asleep. And if I woke up in the middle of the night, it was the same thing. I wouldn't get out of bed. I would just stay in bed and do sort of little kind of quiet, relaxing things. And the other thing is I didn't worry about it if I couldn't sleep and if I wasn't getting enough sleep. Because the great thing about working on the Polar Stern is I would get up at the same time in the morning pretty much. And um, I knew that if I got really tired in the day, I could come back and take a nap. Oh, that's nice. And my... um, cabin mate was um german and she had a. she said this wasn't a german word she said this was her mother's family word is taking a whoosh which is taking just a little nap and so she and i had this thing is like she was a heavy whoosher and so so we would both say when we come into the cabin in the middle of the day we'd say whoosh time and we would both just take naps and so it wasn't didn't cause me anxiety if i couldn't sleep at night because i knew i could take a nap when i got um, tired. That's great advice also for for the people who are going now or will be in in uh, 24-hour light yeah. because I guess at a certain point that that's hard to for your brain even to process that it's that it's time to sleep so just keep your schedule uh, you know stable constant yeah. And, cool. and, and take a nap if you can. And take a nap if you need and, and can. Push yeah. time. <laughs> and then Sundays, on Sundays, which was the one day where they wouldn't schedule anything in the morning to try to give people par- a partial break, at least on my leg, mm-hmm. is let if you want to sleep in on Sundays, sleep in on Sundays. Yes. <laughs> Great. And now we need to turn it back to you, actually. Oh, no. So we want to <laughs> mm-hmm. ask you, um, what if, if you were here with us taking a tea with our next conversation with our next guest, mm-hmm. what would you like to know from this person? Uh, what was your favorite food to eat and when and where? Yes. Okay. Oh, I love this. Pretty question. clear. <laughs> what, was yours? what was yours? Mine, well, um, I actually liked the food quite a lot. And I liked, I mean, both to tell you the truth, I know a lot of people did not like the food on the Drenitsen, but I actually really liked the food on the Drenitsen and the Polar Stern both. I was very adaptable. And, um, but on the Polar Stern, one thing, and actually we did it on the Drenitsen too, is people like to get together like at midnight and, you know, take food that they left for us for leftovers and stuff. And that was always kind of fun because you could kind of build your own plate, you know, with cheeses and meats or leftovers and bread and stuff. And people would, there was a small kind of like a supper club that would meet, you know, really late at night to have some more food. So that, that, that was kind of one of my little funnest times just because people were there. And the other thing I really liked is I'm very, there's a Russian food called pelmini which is like mm-hmm. these little pouches, you know, mm-hmm. with meat inside, and they kind of serve it in a broth usually. And when they had that on the Dranitsin, I really, really enjoyed that a lot. Because you mentioned the Kapitan Dranitsin, the next music is a Russian song, yeah. uh, and it's called Arabica by Didula. Yeah. Um, 
and it was great. So when I was uh, putting it on the playlist, I listened to to it a little bit. I was like, "Wow, that's great!" I, I I'm really excited to have it on the playlist. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's a it's a Russian techno group that I learned about. I think I think I was just probably in the airport at Moscow and on the way out of the country and had to get, use up my rubles, and I probably just grabbed the CD to see what it's like. But I really like Didula a lot, and I think they're a great group. So, Tania, we are more or less at the end of our podcast. I could talk to you, or we could talk to you. I think for another hour oh, or two. <laughs> it's uh, it's that it's so interesting, and um, yeah, we couldn't. I mean, it's it's every time I think we're meeting with someone, it's like we <laughs> we never find an end here. I'm pretty excited, also to. Um, I mean, I don't know if we meet in person soon again but at least see you at the at the remote workshops if, if yeah. they happen like that and um yeah i would like to thank you very much um You're welcome to, to be on this episode i think we we again um learned a lot and we again so for me it's always when people talk about it it's um you're creating this atmosphere you know i can totally see yeah. how it was maybe also because I was on board I know where the things are so I totally can understand how it kind of feels maybe not totally but at least <laughs> somehow I get the atmosphere and I hope this is also um, true for the audience out there uh, listening to the podcast and uh, yeah so so with that we would like to thank uh, Tanil very much taking her bolder morning time uh, to speak with us Yes. Thank you very much, Tanya. No problem. This is great. Thank you very much for inviting me. And I would also like to make a few announcements about other podcasts uh, you might uh, want to um, uh, look into. So one is actually by Sam Cornish. He was attending the Mosaic School on board the Academic Fedorov in um, fall last year and um, each of these mosaic school participants had a um, outreach project and his outreach project is um, has now been published or he's he started publishing and these are mini podcasts about uh, mosaic it's called mosaic mixed down so you can go on spotify and find these and um, mm -hmm. really cool short podcast, I think three to five minutes or so uh, with um, many people speaking and um, always answering one question he had to the people. Yeah. So uh, that's something to really look into. And then if you are understanding German language, there are two more podcasts um, that I would recommend. One is again um, the Arctic Drift audio logbook. We have mentioned this one before. This is the official Mosaic um, podcast. Um, that mm -hmm. is always the chief scientist who is speaking. And um, for now, they have um, had a new episode with uh, Thorsten Kanzo, who is uh, still on board. I mean, they're going now out of the ice with Polarstern. And Thorsten Kanzo is talking about this. Mm -hmm. And then also the um, Ocean um, Science podcast Tripols, Driftwood in English. And they have started a series of mosaic podcasts. And um, yeah, I think it's fun. And it's good that um, yeah more people talk about their mosaic experiences. 
We thank, as always, also Radio Visa TV for the platform. Yes. Um, even though we are now doing this from home, they are always very supportive and and they help us getting our our podcast uh, on air. And then and we thank Tanil again for for being with us. And stay tuned for the next episode. Yeah. Bye bye. Thanks very much. It was really great. Yes. Bye bye. Bye everyone. Bye bye. The iSpot is produced by the Year of Polar Prediction International Coordination Office with the technical support of Radio Visa TV as well as the support by the communication team of Mosaic and the Alfred Wegener Institute. Editorial responsibility is with Kirstin Werner and Sara Pascoletto. Our theme music is composed by Kevin McLeod, available on incompetech.com. For any questions, please contact us at polarprediction at gmail.com.